Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale January 13, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. I just realized, uh, because we record the show a little bit early, and normally I don't give two fricks or fracks about birthdays, particularly my own, or probably... Mm-hmm anybody's uh except my daughters and my wife's and my mom's anyway i don't care about birthdays much but uh the release date for all these comics is my birthday when i turn wow. 40 years old wow y'all. 40 40 a song by you too this is 40 a film uh four score i don't know yep. if that i forget what the math on what score means is anyway uh, hey happy uh, early yeah what a landmark thank you what a what a time uh so i turned the big 4-0 we've got comics to talk about it's uh still a fresh uh fun new year big things happening uh work has started on my my new house or not my new house because the house is 100 years old but <laughs> work has started on uh the house so things are happening tell me something great from the world of tucker marcus oh man oh here's something here's something um Speaking of moving around, speaking of moving locations and stuff like that, soon I will be coming to you uh, from sunny and maybe a little bit scary California. What? Um, Yeah, not not permanently, but semi-permanently from this spring for like the next six months. Um, Yeah, I'll be uh, on Pacific coast time that's have some sunscreen on my nose i'll be wearing a visor i'll have frosted tips and flip-flops how close to la are you gonna be in in la yes. you're tucker you've barely this left is, the house in new york and we, we've had you're like, so right look it's this is not a a let's just do this for fun choice this is uh uh this is motivated by job things my very very sweet girlfriend uh her job's taking us out there so um in this time of working from home i thought why not let's let's join let's go for it good well i uh i hope you adopt as many laisms as possible on the next recording when you are in la i want you just wearing <laughs> like like a little strappy shirt and, yeah. and some sunscreen on your nose and uh, yeah. we'll go from there socal surfer dude that's right. That's right. Uh, and from one SoCal surfer dude to another, I think it's about time for us to talk about this week's comics. Yeah. We've got a whole bunch of great comics coming up. And after that, we have a reading club episode with David Gelb, director of an episode of Marvel's 616. We'll talk to him in a while, but uh, let's get things started with our picks of the week. I will kick us off, Tucker, uh, with my first pick of the week, which is King in Black Thunderbolts. Number one, this is written by Matthew Rosenberg, art, the whole kit and caboodle, pencils, letters, colors, all that, by Juan Ferreira, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Now, if you're a frequent listener to the show, you know those names, Matthew Rosenberg and Juan Ferreira, are instant, instant pushes for both of us, Tucker Mm -hmm. and I, to probably make this one of our picks of the week. And so, I didn't even, like, I didn't even have to read the book to know it was going to be a pick of the week, but I did, and it's great. Uh, This is, of course, a King in Black tie-in, King in Black being the big, giant, mega event happening across Earth in the Marvel Universe, right? Actually, the entire Marvel Universe, where Null, the god of the symbiotes, has come to take over. He's he's awake, 
He's just having some <laughs> snackies and he's, he's having a good time. Uh, so now he's on Earth and he is here to destroy things. And uh, who's going to stand up to him? Wilson Fisk. By proxy, though. Wilson Fisk is uh, the kingpin and he is enlisting a team of villains. He is so wonderfully dubbed the Thunderbolts because he owns the copyright to the name, which is such a great touch. <laughs> uh, he is taking the Thunderbolts and having them go up and get involved in the fracas. So from there, we get a team of Thunderbolts, we get a mission, we get magic and mayhem and science and weird stuff, and most importantly, Batroc Zilibert, who is one of my favorite Marvel villains. And in the hands of Matt and Juan, you just get amazing stuff throughout. Uh, the team, uh, in addition to Batroc, is Taskmaster, Rhino, Star, Mr. Fear, and a couple of others. It's really like star making, uh, I say star making stuff, not just because star is in it, but like you get really great spotlights on particularly Mr. Fear, Star, and Batroc. Taskmaster is a guy who currently has his own book going on and a lot of people know Taskmaster. So he's he's already got that superstar look. But People seeing Mr. Fear, people seeing Batroc again, uh, Star getting a good shot. It's all great here. It's gorgeously rendered, as everything Juan does is. It's weird. The like the symbiote designs, the creatures, get freaky. He really, really digs into getting weird with some of the the symbiote like takeover stuff, and it is. Gorgeous. I really, really love all that. Um, I will give this one of our pulleys, one of our special weekly awards for Burton-esque panel of the week. A uh, little Tim Burton vibes when we get to Ravencroft as the mm. team uh, just, you know, gets into their mission. Um, a very Tim Burton-looking panel in all the best ways. Oh, yeah. I loved it so much. Dream combo right there. All right. My first pick this week comes in the form of Star Wars Darth Vader number nine. Uh, it's written by Greg Pak with art by Rafaela Yenko, colors by Niraj Manan, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. We're in the middle of a very interesting sticky stew here between I think three kind of main figures Darth Vader the Emperor and then Ochi the assassin that we were introduced to as Star Wars fans in Star Wars the Rise of Skywalker as I've said before I think this series has done and continues to do the best job I've ever seen of linking the three Star Wars film trilogies together. And I say that across any kind of Star Wars media that I've taken in, whether that's comics, whether that's TV, anything like that. Because the way it's so organically done, the way that the details really matter is just such a delight to read. Uh, and for this one, you get a kind of showdown as the Emperor has sicked Ochi, this assassin, on Vader as a kind of challenge to the Dark Lord and to see how Vader responds, but doesn't just want to kill him is interesting. It's a very interesting dynamic that we end up setting out upon. And this one, I think my highlight of it, maybe my pulley for this one, goes to like punch of the week, I want to say. There's, <laughs> as always, like there's great you know, fighting and, and action scenes in so many different books this week. But there's just something so visceral and so right about seeing Darth Vader punch someone. It's something you don't get often. He'll either use the force, maybe he'll use his lightsaber, but just a straight old knuckle sandwich from Darth Vader is a rare sight. And it is something I loved to see. We get all that plus some great Star Wars 
like weirdness and weird monster action, which is just the best. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this whole creative team, and I think they're telling a great story, this Darth Vader standalone story, and they're also telling a great Star Wars era story across the prequels, the original, and the, and the sequel trilogy. And that's really tough to do. Either one of those is really tough to do, but to do them both so well uh, is a huge achievement. So shout out to this entire team. Yeah. I also love this book because it's like the weird side of Star Wars that I really, really dig into. I'm glad that this book is taking that tone along with everything else it's doing. And my second pick of the week is Sword Number 2, written by Al Ewing, pencils by Valerio Schiti, colors by Marte Gracia, and letters by VCs Ariana Mar. Uh, this one is another King in Black tie-in, so we know everything that's going on. What's interesting is Sword is above Earth, and it's in geosynchronous orbit with the planet. So you've got a lot of business going on with how does this group of mutants who is uh, trying to push mutant kind and even humankind forward into the galaxy deal with a galactic threat already as they've just gotten out of the gate. And it's really cool. You, I, I think one of my favorite moments is with WizKid. He's like the tech guy on the crew and he's busy doing some stuff. And you just see him having his own way to deal with the uh, symbiotes, the big dragons, that kind of stuff. It's a great, great moment in there. Really uh, quality stuff. Uh, speaking of quality, I'm going to give a pulley to the quality dinguses of the week. Fabian Cortez and Mentallo. They are two true dinguses <laughs> of this group, which is part of the dynamic of this team and this this book and it makes it really really fun fabian cortez has this ability to amplify powers but it makes people like it basically an addictive drug um and it, he was a part of a really great magneto storyline you know gosh 30 years ago and so it's really cool to see him he's still a big old tool and the mentalo is also a tool he's got telepathic powers but he's part of a big uh, mission that is really integral to the future of mutant kind in this book in a really interesting way. Uh, I will give another pulley to this book for my oh crap final page of the week uh, when you see how the King and Black of it all is affecting the X Men and 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 what that could mean to this. It's it's a big book. It furthers along everything that's going on in the title, but also ties in so well to King and Black. I think that's one of the things I really love right now about the X Men books. Tucker is like. The X-Men books have their own thing going on, but when they integrate into the larger stories that are going on in the Marvel Universe, they really feel like very much a meaty part of everything, which is super cool. Yeah, I totally agree. And what an achievement, again, like crazy to imagine the planning and everything that goes on with it. Okay, that's what we have for our picks this week. Now we're diving into our police of the week. We're kicking it off as we usually do with Amazing Spider-Man. This is issue number 57. We are in the postmortem of Last Remains, a major story arc in this series among a bunch of major story arcs. You know, I think often about something that Amazing Spider-Man legend Dan Slott said, and I think says often, which is it's the job of a comic book creative team to drag their heroes through difficult times, through death and destruction and pain, because we need to witness those lows in order to really appreciate and feel the highs. That's what a story is, and that's something that I think about often. It's something I think about in terms of just our everyday lives in the real world. And it's something I certainly think about in terms of storytelling. And that certainly is something that Nick Spencer, uh, the writer of Amazing Spider-Man, is 
very familiar with. Everything going on in here is super, super dramatic, super heartfelt for Pete and company. And it's a tough time. There's something major that Peter Parker learns in this issue that I think really throws him for a loop and ends up being a big part of the story that's going on at the moment. Uh, It's interesting to see him in a place like this, really testing the limits of how he can handle these things, of how he can stay a hero in the face of such darkness. And uh, that, in a way, gets to the soul of Spider-Man. So it's a really fascinating area to explore. And certainly Nick Spencer and company are doing that uh, big time here. Totally. Uh, all right. As we roll on more pulleys, I want to give out one to Chris Claremont Anniversary Special, which is a big book celebrating 50 years of Chris Claremont at Marvel with a brand new story uh, where he's joined by a bunch of his classic and some new creators, some partners that he's worked with over the years. So you get art by Bill Sienkiewicz and Sean Chen and Brett Booth, among others. Uh, but I will give a pulley to this book for the old school vibes of the week. Uh, it's got Shadow King. It's got Danny Moonstar. It's got the FF. It's just just that nostalgia nugget that you're looking for and uh, it's right there oh yeah uh, next up we have immortal hulk number 42 and this is an issue that i think is a great reminder of somehow some way the creative team and the editorial team on immortal hulk have not only managed to tell an amazing bruce banner story but an amazing body horror story amazing horror comic amazing action comic but also a comic that has a great supporting cast. And that's something we really get to dig into in this issue. Get to see not just what's going on with the Hulk, but the characters surrounding him and how they react to these situations, what's going on with them, as well as the kind of amorphous, difficult to pin down. Is this real? Is this happening in the mind? What's going on here? area that I think we've played in before and that is so fruitful, so fun and realized so beautifully. It's something I was thinking about when I was reading Sword this week of just like, is it just called being a great writer for Al Ewing? Maybe that's all it is. But like page one of Sword this week, I was like, oh, I'm here. I'm home. I'm in it. And then, of course, we're familiar with that feeling when it comes to Immortal Hulk, and we get more of that here. It is just delightful, wonderful stuff. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the King in Black a little bit more. We've got King in Black, Gwenum versus Carnage. This is part one of this series. And uh, Sean McGuire, again, takes the reins on a ghost spider story. Uh, what's really cool about this, because I was reading the back matter, is how this story really fits into Seanan's big plans for the title, for the characters, stuff that she had been looking to do with Gwen Stacy of Earth-65 for a long time, Ghost Spider, aka Spider-Gwen, as many know her, and really, like, alter her reality and change things and really throw her for a loop, and she gets to do it amidst all the King and Black stuff, and it's a really interesting and cool way to tie that all in. Of course, the title of the book is Gwenum versus Carnage, so there's carnage in this book. I don't want to spoil anything. I will just say it's cool. It feels really dark and scary for Gwen, and I'm very excited to see where it goes. I'm going to give it a pulley for Dragon Rider of the Week, as at one point Gwen webs up her boots and jumps on the back of one of the symbiote dragons so they can't, you know, like blah, 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 get into her, and like whips it around and rides it just really really cool way uh flaviano nails that art in that bit very very well oh yeah all right more king and black action on the way in king and black planet of the symbiotes number one this is two stories in one in a really interesting fun way that i really like because they flow together very beautifully the first is a scream story that 
I don't know if it was just that story that made me think the whole think of the whole book this way, or I'm just bringing this to the table myself. This issue kind of felt like Escape from New York, but with symbiotes, where it's just like you're trapped in this place and there's horrible, disgusting, terrifying monsters everywhere. And uh, exploring that and feeling trapped and kind of at a hundred mile an hour pace the whole time where you're just running from it. You're getting these glimpses, these kind of key art flashes of crazy action is super fun. It's really exciting. The second story is a Ravencroft story um, that I think continues in that fashion. Look, if you're a fan of monster comics, if you're a fan of horror comics, if you're a fan of artwork that captures that in a way that is at times hard to believe um, how these creative teams pull it off visually, artistically. It's really, really incredible. And this is the story for you. If you're all in on King and Black, you're all in on that side of the Marvel Universe, you should be all in on this book. Yeah. One of the other things I like about King and Black, especially this week, is the introduction of new stuff. Yeah. Like there's a new Carnage there is a new character introduced in the Ravencroft story here, and there, there's sort of vibes on other characters and other things, but it's cool. This is bringing us new and interesting and really dark and weird stuff, which I'm all for. Yeah. Um, let's get into the X-Men side of things with Marauders number 17. This is going to get my pulley for party prep of the week as uh, Emma Frost and her cohorts are getting ready for the big Hellfire Gala that we've been teasing and talking about through the uh, last couple of months since even before Ten of Swords. This feels like it's starting to bubble up and it feels like it's going to be a big, cool deal. I like how this book straddles the line from like funny to dark to sad to sweet to nostalgic. Um, you've got all these different things. The party prep bits were just really funny and you know have great characterization and little like oomph to them while at the same time you have stuff with like kitty pride going to madripoor and having really sweet moments you have a storm and callisto interaction which is like if you've been reading x-men comics since the late 100s when you know storm was dealing with the morlocks and into the 200s like this pays off stuff from way back then even it's freaking great it's really really good nice all right we're wrapping up our new comics this week with the union number two this is uh continues the tale obviously of the union and is a king and black story itself this is a team and comprised of a couple characters that i'm not super duper familiar with beforehand so digging into this has been really really fun for me in particular i really enjoy the way that they drag you into this story whether you like it or not you're emotionally invested from the first couple of pages and i think that goes back to issue number one in a great way where you were just asked to come with this team, you're asked to invest, you're asked to be part of the emotional story that's going on at the same time as all of this wild action. I really enjoy in particular, there's something going on here where just the entire issue takes place at night, which I really like. Uh, I think it just fits tonally so well, and I think the coloring carries it off beautifully. It's Nolan Woodard, who is one of the best mm-hmm. there is when it comes to it. Uh, so it's really, really cool, and it's an interesting story that we got going on here, one that definitely has captured my attention in a big way, and I think we're propelling forward in a very fascinating manner. Look, I hate to say it, but I'm a bit of an Anglophile. I'm ashamed oh, a little bit to say that, but I am. Uh, so just on that level alone, I'm invested. I like reading it in uh, with that perspective. So it's a really fun book. There's a there's a joke from The Simpsons where Homer's brother Herb 
basically owned like a Ford type company. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about his history and, you know, didn't know where he came from. And he's like, do you all know where you come from? He's talking to like his main advisors. And one of the guys goes, well, you could say my my family line starts when the Angles met the Saxons. And I was just like... <laughs> That yeah. that always makes me think of when everybody's whenever anybody someone talks about being an Anglophile or you know like any of this stuff I would just think of like the whitest of the white. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But this book also yeah. has snakes in it. And the character snakes, which is great. Yeah. Catherine Grace, what do you think about snakes? There's <laughs> a kind of She's... pensive look there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Catherine Grace has joined us for the last bit of uh, this episode before we get into our reading club. Tucker, what uh, collections do we have that you want to point out? Uh, A bunch of great stuff, as per usual. Big standout item here in general is a couple of things. One, if you are into the Eternals, if you're excited about the Eternals, we have a couple Eternals collections on offer in print. Eternals, the Dreaming Celestial Saga, and Thor in the Eternals, the Celestial Saga, and, hey, another timely item, which is Vision and the Scarlet Witch, the saga of Wanda and Vision. Uh, as usual, great stuff on offer and print. Yep. Uh, that Vision and Scarlet Witch book, perfectly timed for the start of Marvel Studios' WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. Highly suggest you check it out. Really, really cool. Uh, all right, Marvel Unlimited. We've got a bunch of new books in there. Of course, there's some Ten of Swords books in there, Wolverine and, and X-Force. I most specifically want to point out Black Widow number two is on Marvel Unlimited. One of my favorite books that we're publishing right now. It is damn near perfect, and it will break your freaking heart. So just brace yourself for this book for every issue. I hope you're reading it as we are. Uh, all right. Now it is time for us to get into our reading club, and we are talking with Mr. David Gelb, director of documentaries, um, Zero Dreams of Sushi, and of course, an episode of Marvel 616, uh, where we talked to him about all that stuff, but he has picked some really cool books. Tucker, what did he pick? Uh, David picked Spirits of Venom, which hold on to your butts, folks, if you've never read that before. Hit pause right now. Go read the whole thing. Okay, welcome back. That was wild, wasn't it? Uh, so Spirits of Venom, as well as Spectacular Spider-Man number 189. That's what we dive into, David, and it is wild stuff. Yeah, so let's uh, let's go to that right now. David, thank you so much for joining us here on Marvel's Pull List. It is a pleasure to talk to you. And it was a wild ride that you sent us on reading Spirits of Venom. (laughs) To jump right into it, what year do you remember first reading this little series? And what do you remember? What kind of instant memories come back when we're talking Spirits of Venom? Well, you know, I read it, you know, I can't remember the year, but I I was like, I think in middle school. And like, this was uh, something that I read many times. And like, I would just like, this is like my Friday night or whatever. It's like, I was like, Oh, I'm going to read like spirits of venom. And I would have them like stacked up in order. And I think that's the one that got me. I think that the thing that got me, cause I think I, I bought the fourth issue and then because the cover art was just so incredible, this image of venom, like upside down with like ghost Rider's head and the chain. And just like the art throughout the whole thing is just like totally amazing. And I think that was what kind of got me. Then I went back and got the other ones and it was cool to me. It was like, across the two different you know comics and stuff and they renamed um spirits of vengeance for it which i thought was cool but just like 
the premise of it is just so crazy. Just even just trying to explain like a log yeah. line of like <laughs> what's happening here. Um, Cause it's like, you just beat Hobgoblin and he's on his way home. And then it's like, Oh, I'm going to get, he gets into a fight. And just like the coincidences also of just like how they're all running into each other. is just total, totally insane. Yeah. So, you know, he's on his way home with Hobgoblin. It's like, Oh, there's Demo Goblin and the doppelganger over there. They're going to get into a fight. And the whole time he's fighting them, he's like juggling the Hobgoblin and just the humor of like the Demo Goblin, which is like the third degree from Green Goblin. And then you have the two Spider-Mans, you know, doppelganger and Spider-Man. And then, you know, Venom is going to be in it also. And then they're just going to fall through into this underground terrain and then run into Ghost Rider and Johnny Blaze on a totally different thread down there. And then we're all just going to fight a bunch of demons and try to prevent <laughs> uh, Death Watch's resurrection using the souls of Hobgoblin and a random priest that we're protecting also. And just that whole setup just led to like, some of the craziest like action panels I've ever seen, like in a comic. What you described is about eleven to twelve pages of yeah. the story. <laughs> like, like just all of that is only the first half of the first yeah. issue. So that's, that's like the setup. just this slip. <laughs> it's it's so great. I and I love the, as you describe it because this story to me is pure nineties. Like if you could encapsulate. 90s Marvel comics, they would have a number of different like buckets. This is one of those buckets. Venom, so hot at this time. Ghost Rider, so hot at this time. You smash all that together with some Spider-Man and and some, you know, ridiculous costumes and stuff. This is what you get. And it's I'm so glad you brought up the covers too, because for me, when you chose this, I was like, immediately that that fourth cover of the storyline, that's the Spirits of Vengeance cover, I yeah. believe. Um, that one and the web of Spider-Man cover, those two covers, they're burned into my mind. Mark Teixeira, he was like this amazing painter during the nineties. He would do trading cards and he would do these covers. He did a lot of stuff with Ghost Rider. And I remember that cover. And then the Adam Kubert, Ken Stacy cover of the one that you talked about, the Venom cover where he's holding Ghost Rider's head on the chain. Yeah. This one is like, yeah, like one of the Dude. coolest images when they put together these characters also, it's like some of the darkest kind of scariest. It's a really a horror, um, the series, like a horror series, really. Yeah. It's some gnarly stuff happening right there. I want to give a special shout out to Ken Stacy, who's a colorist on that cover, because Adam Kubert, one of the greatest artists I think we've ever had at Marvel. He's a legend now, you know, 30 years into his career. I actually texted him about this and I was like, your venom is so roided up with teeth coming out of every possible angle. Oh yeah. It's wild. He's like, and, yeah, that was fun times. Yeah. And just wild, like veins and drool and teeth <laughs> and rows of teeth. So you put them in the same frames as like with Demo Goblin and Ghost Rider. And it's just like these just terrifying, terrifying characters. Doppelganger too has got a lot of teeth as well. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. You know, I like that you talk about the horror aspect. Tucker, did you get a chance to read any of the other Spirits of Vengeance issues around this? Because there's a, a couple issues that kind of lead into it. Yeah, the lead-in issues, it's, you know, we were talking briefly actually about Marvel Unlimited beforehand, but yeah, the the lead-in is Ghost Rider Blaze Spirits of Vengeance uh, number one through number four. I wanted to mention that because there's actually a great, there's a, a reading list um, already on marvel.com that listeners can go check out and, and get the full lead-in series and then the series itself. That one I didn't get to read. I read the synopses for it, but this whole kind of everything going on here, I was just like running to catch up the entire time because 
echoing both of what you guys have said, it's so nonstop. It was kind of shocking to read. I mean, in that first issue of the main series, there's literally, I don't think one panel of like people just talking. It's that fast paced. So yeah, this was a first read for me and what a wild time. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to give a special shout out again to Adam Kubert, because as good as he is in the two issues of Spirits of Venom, the preceding issues of Ghost Rider and Blaze Spirits of Vengeance are beautiful pieces of work. And this is almost 30 years ago. Dude has only gotten better and he's currently doing Wolverine. I will give quick credits and then we can jump back into it. The writer on all four of these issues is Howard Mackey on the web of Spider-Man issues. It's art by Alex Saviak, who is just a great Spider-Man artist from the 90s. And then Adam Kubert doing just amazing work all across the Ghost Rider and Blaze books. It's so much fun. Yeah. I mean, the spirits of Venom issues of it have just such an incredible look. And I think that that, I guess he's coming at it from that kind of Ghost Rider art perspective, like makes Venom just look really, really scary. And like this, this moment here, like this fight between Venom and Ghost Rider, just like is and staring into Mm -hmm. each other's eyes. And you know, the Venom and the, and the, uh, you know, weak against fire, but this is a different kind of fire and they just explode. It just explodes. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, and also just like the, the, the interpretations of Venom are just absolutely wild. So, I mean, I feel like this was like a big deal for me, just seeing kind of like what the artistry of comics can be and they, how they can just like take some of these characters that I'm quite familiar with in the Spider-Man style of drawing and just turning them just totally into these kind of like monsters. David, to go back a little bit, can you track, obviously you work as a documentarian, a filmmaker, a director, Are you able to track reading something like this and seeing kind of the trajectory, maybe, if any, of creative influence that a book like this or Marvel Comics at large has had on you personally? Obviously, your work on Marvel 616, um, the documentary series, is incredible and it's largely about that on a cultural level. But for you personally, can you track any of these things? Well, one one big, it's, it's a bit circuitous, but like, I got very into manga after I was into Marvel comics. So I was into Japanese stuff because uh, my dad took me to Japan on like his work trips. And I would go to Japan, he'd give me some Power Ranger kind of action figures and stuff. And, you know, I thought it was awesome. Um, So I was always really into Japanese stuff. Then, you know, I loved Marvel comics. And then I started getting into manga that was being translated and then watching, you know, um, like anime on VHS and stuff like, you know, every, everything from Voltron. So my dad would just get me everything. He didn't know that some of the stuff was too like adult for a child to, <laughs> to watch. So, you know, I would he'd give me like Voltron, which is like kind of kid friendly. But then there's like, um, you know, there was Evangelion in there bordering on the weird and uh, <laughs> psychosexual, even kind of strange. And but, you know, with the with the giant robots and everything, which makes it seem like it's for kids. And then there's, um, you know, like Akira and these things like that. So this got me really into Japanese stuff again and Japanese fiction and everything. And then that kind of led me on this path to make Jira Dreams of Sushi just because I love Japan so much and wanted to spend time there and uh, got really into this like idea of like craftsmanship. And then I went to USC because I wanted to be in like big movies. Like I wanted to work on big movies. And I actually got an internship working on Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3 as kind of a, uh, a production office kind of intern guy, just filing 
but every once in a while, you know, I'd be filing away, you know, like concept art or references and discovering it's like, oh, this movie has Sandman. Like, oh, wait, this movie also has Venom. Like it started to get kind of weird, just like discovering more and more stuff. So that was really um, kind of a, a fun moment to be on like the set of just like the, that, that movie was as big as they come. And then through that job, you know, I was an intern and I would also shoot little behind the scenes videos and stuff like that. And that got me into documentary. And that's kind of, so the culmination of the Japan path and then mm. working behind the scenes on big movies led me into making the documentary Jira Dreams of Sushi. So then flash forward all these years, we're talking to Disney Plus about making documentary content for their platforms. Marvel is excited about doing a doc series based on stories kind of adjacent to the Marvel universe or about the people around it, the unseen stories or the unsung heroes of Marvel. And this idea of Japanese Spider-Man is it kind of is, is thrown into the air and I'm immediately like mine. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've talked immensely about Japanese Spider-Man, about the documentary across my multiple shows and on Twitter. And it's, it's so good. One of the many things that's so special about the, the film is how reverent it is and how honest it is and how emotional it is. I, I've watched fans when they learn about this, sometimes they're like, wait a minute. Japanese Spider-Man. Why does he have a robot? What's that car about? What's all this stuff? But then you see like watching your film about it, you can see the, like the attention and the love and, and like sometimes just the happenstance that put it all together, but the people behind it really believed in it. And it's just so, it's so pure. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it was just incredible how people were responding to our inquiries, you know, about wanting to talk about it because this was like, something that for for all the cast members and crew members that we interviewed it seemed like this was like a very important project for all of them like a very important moment in all of their careers kind of like a launching pad for a lot of their careers and they just felt like it had been forgotten and so they were really excited that somebody was going to see this labor of love that they had all contributed to especially shinji toto the actor who plays takuya who you know is the japanese version of, of peter parker gets very emotional in the film and he kind of becomes like the heartbeat of the movie. So we were really happy to be able to make something that was both kind of informative, fun to watch. It's just fun to see clips from Japanese Spider-Man, but also something that like has heart to it. And I think that people, when they see how much work and like love goes into something and it allows them to enjoy it even more. I'm going to try and thread a needle here and it's quite a needle to thread, but I'm going to give it my all. I'm, so happy you brought up Jiro Dreams of Sushi because my first time seeing that documentary was a revelatory experience for me in viewing documentaries at large. The reason why is because obviously it's about the craftsmanship, but the way that a narrative evolves and comes through in that film and presents itself in ways that you didn't even expect. You know, documentaries can be impactful and demand empathy, but the way that that presented a story was the revelatory experience in particular for me. And there's even like a thing of, oh, I saw it of like a reveal. And, and that's something that I never even considered documentaries can be. Looking at something like that, and then looking at something like this, and looking at your work in general with, whether that's narrative features or documentaries, Touching on that emotional point, is that the key here? Is that always the key? What's I just wanted to get your thoughts in general of yeah. what the through line is between these various things. Obviously, your fandom of this is very different from your work, but is it always emotion for you that can present the investment that, that demands the investment? Or is it 
you know, in something like this? Is it just strictly the visual in the comics that we're reading and the information that we're being given, say, in a documentary? Um, yeah. Or is it the kind of emotional investment that's demanded? Or is it something entirely else? Is it something, a combination of all of it? Yeah. I'm just curious about what that essential piece of presenting a narrative is from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that the two storylines that I chose, you know, one of which I was very into like the visual and the coolness of it. And that was like spirits of spirits of venom. But then I chose a spectacular Spider-Man because of the emotion that's in that episode. And, you know, my parents were going through a divorce at the time. So I think that's one of the reasons that that really resonated with me. And so, you know, in my work, it's not enough to just present information as cool as that information could be, you know? I mean, there's a very straightforward way of doing a Japanese Spider-Man documentary where it's really just about, you know, what happens in the episodes and what's different about, you know, American Spider-Man. And we, and we do that, but what makes it really worthwhile and what makes an audience care about it, even people who, you know, the greatest compliment we ever get on Jared James of sushi is that you don't have to like sushi to enjoy the movie. And I want people who may not have heard of or care about or may not care about Japanese Spider-Man at all to still find something of value that can resonate with them. And so that's really the key for me is um, something that's cool, but that also has emotion. So you like you come for the coolness, you stay for the story, you stay for the character and the heart of it. Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to deliver, you know, across all the work that I'm doing. Let's get back to the comics real quick. I, I know I want to talk about Spectacular because, man... This is that's a sweet spot right there. But uh, getting back into Spirits of Venom, you set up the the ten the, those eleven pages of setup really gets us into this wild brawl underneath a cathedral in New York City, and it has this priest character, which like he wasn't stuck in my brain. I've read this story a number of times, but reading it here, I was like, this priest dude rules. He's like standing up for people. He is that power and responsibility itching you know voice in Spider Man's head at times. And also, I don't know if either of you have seen Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, which is one of my favorite weird horror yeah. movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a priest in that movie. And he, he's this kung fu priest who goes, I kick arse for the Lord. And he knocks <laughs> off uh, a, a, um, a zombie's head. That was a really bad New Zealand accent. I want to be clear. <laughs> it sounded more Irish, I think, at the end. But nonetheless, uh, that the priest in this comic reminded me of that priest. And I was just like... Man, comics rule. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it is badass. How, and, and clearly it's the writer's intention to be like, oh, the priest is, you know, the fragile, you know, it's actually the only non-super character in the whole thing who is, you know, needs to be protected by Spider-Man. He's also protecting Hobgoblin. You know, he's got to protect both of them because both of their life forces are about to be absorbed or that's the plan. But there's also this thing, it reminds me a little bit of like the exorcist because, you know, like the priest is down there there's a kind of demonic rite that is being used to uh, revive Death Watch. And like, it, it, I just feel like they're kind of like taking that, that plug, like, oh, the priest should be weak. No, this priest is actually kind of a badass. And he's incredibly, he, he becomes like the point of inspiration for Spider-Man to like, keep fighting through this impossible, you know, fight that they're in. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's really rad. I love that. Yeah. One of the things I really love about this is it's a very tight, compact story. Very few locations, the church, the catacombs. It's a fight, fight, fight story. Yeah. It's you, you've got good versus evil. You've got a little hemming and hawing. You've got venom trying to eat people. You've got a couple of tiny little side stories, but you're in and out 
so quick. I'm glad you picked this one because it's it's a really interesting snapshot. We talked about the 90s and the place, but this is also these issues came out October, November 1992. So if you think about that, it's shortly after Spidey's 30th anniversary, shortly after the other issue we're going to talk about that you chose. It's just a few months after Carnage's debut. So mm. like that that's sort of like in the background. It's really briefly referenced. It's side by side with some really wild parent stuff happening in Amazing Spider-Man. And it's just before Venom goes to San Francisco for his solo book in Lethal Protector. And then on the Ghost Rider side, this is almost like the apex of Ghost Rider's popularity in the 90s. This is like three years after the debut of Dan Ketch's Ghost Rider, the, the second Ghost Rider. It's a really just... Look, I like looking at the history of all this stuff. Sure. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's really neat. Wow. And then, you know, in the end, um, you know, Venom is, is, is captured and is placed in the vault. And then in my mind, and I don't know if this is actually canon, but like the next book that I would read to follow this would be Venom Death Watch, the vault about mm-hmm. kind of like Venom's escape. And is, is that like what the canon is? I think is so. To be? I think that's. And then he's that, escaped that and he goes to San it. Francisco to lay low at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Uh, continuity. It's so so much fun. <laughs> like this this living, breathing universe, you know, to what you were talking about at the beginning, how Blaze and Ghost Rider just happen to be in New York City doing this thing. And Spider-Man just happens to be sw- like all these things just come together. That's one of the many reasons why the Marvel Universe is so rad. Yeah. And that's just one of the funny things about this storyline, too. It's just like Spider-Man's just he's just trying to take Hobgoblin to jail. It's like <laughs> he's just on his way home from like a, a big fight. And like things just keep getting worse for him, running into Demogol and then running into Venom and then this insanity that's going on underground. Tough day, tough night for Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, one last thing I want to say about all this, the opening page of the last part is such an incredible shot. Oh, uh, through Venom's mouth. It's Yeah, from yeah. shot, like the camera is in Venom's mouth pointing out you see the teeth you see some of venom's what we now know is his waste product like that's the goo that canonically is is his like excrement and you're looking out and you see ghost rider and the tongue and the teeth that to me is just like frame that up show that to a young artist and be like this is how you can do you don't have to be constrained by something else this is cool yeah that's an amazing point of view and i wonder if that's written or if it's just something that the artist ran with I don't know if I've seen that perspective before, but it's absolutely wild. Ryan, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was kind of what I was curious about to ask to ask you, David, next is we talked a little bit about maybe narrative influences. Is there any cross-pollination in your brain at all between something like this where you're reading it and the visuals are so striking and so unique um, and really bold in a lot of ways, obviously as evidenced by that page in particular, is there any cross-pollination between how you read a comic and how that might have seeded something in your brain at a young age, obviously reading this in, in oh, middle yeah. school, like you mentioned, and then how you see a film that you're making? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I think that that reading comics, reading graphic novels, great ones, you know, they're directed, right? The shots are perspective to bring the audience into it. You know, it's not just about showing what's happening. And let's talk about this frame that we were, that we were just discussing. Like, how do you make it? it looked like Ghost Rider's in trouble. This man is a badass biker with a head that's a skull and he's on fire. Like he is a terrifying <laughs> image. How do you make it seem like this guy is about to run into something? 
and you show a mouthful of like teeth. I mean, it, it's just a terrifying image that makes you worry about Ghost Rider. And that's like a directorial choice. Like that's the perspective. And so reading comic books, I think that Marvel especially, and that's why it translates so well to film, it's always has the cinematic perspective. It's always about drawing the reader in. I mean, think about just the idea of going back to the origins of Spider-Man in the first place. He's a high school kid. This is a kid who is not at all unlike the reader. So it immediately draws you into that point of view. And I think that that's something that has had a huge influence on me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's jump over now to your other pick, which was Spectacular Spider-Man number 189. And yes. my first note here was just hell of an issue. Just oh, yeah. dang, so good. Uh, yeah. J.M. Demetrius is the writer, art by Sal Buscema. I know you, you know, you're, we're, we're going to talk about the story a lot. Were you attracted to artists at all by name or was it just like a feeling thing when you were younger? I mean, not at all. I didn't have really the knowledge of the the artists and stuff. I mean, it's, you know, I, I had an idea of like the editors because every once in a while, you know, there would be like, you know, a note from the editor and it was have, have his name on it. But um, I was drawn in by covers, frankly. You know, I'd go to the comic book store. I had my allowance pick out a few covers that I thought were cool. And then if I liked the, that issue, then I'd be oh, like, man, what happened before and after that? And then I would kind of expand around that. This one had a holographic cover and it was just like anniversary issue. Like, oh, like this is an obvious buy. So uh, that that's what drew me in. And then it's completely contained. It's a really a complete story. Like there's some context and stuff, like a little bit, you know, of course is the history, but it's all quite, uh, the exposition is all nicely done, you know, in the web slinging scene, basically. He like lays, Spider-Man lays it all out. Um, you know, his best friend is losing his mind. And (laughs) I mean, it's so dramatic frame by frame, like just like the first three frames are identical. It's just Peter brooding, looking at this Jack in the box, waiting for MJ to come. I mean, not even waiting for her. He doesn't even know what the hell he's going to do. And then he opens it for her and then it pops out of the box. And like, you know, you're in for some real craziness. And then immediately following we're at home with Norman Jr. and Liz and uh, Molten Man, who I'd actually never heard of before this issue. And then, of course, little Norman is the one holding the pumpkin that the smoke comes out of. And it's just like really, really scary. But it's just like so paced. Like it really feels like storyboards of a movie. Like you can mm-hmm. really feel like the timing. It's like the timing is built into the frames. And like that's something that really stuck with me. And I, I just had never seen a comic like that. Five frames of Peter just dropping a gotcha note on the ground. Just like, you almost like you can hear, like if it were a movie, you would hear it like thud on the ground or something. I mean, it's like heavy. And then just going into the madness of Harry and Liz. I mean, it's just like the divorce from hell. Like, could you imagine? And then he's taking the kid and he's dancing with the kid. Like, mommy doesn't see that this is fun. Like, don't you think it's fun? And it's just like, ah, like it's just so terrifying. And then it's like an in-law fight. <laughs> like there's this moment <laughs> where Molten Man is like, you know, you're going over the edge. Like, let us get you some help. He's holding Norman. And then Harry just, he has the mask on, just backhands a pumpkin bomb right into his stomach. And he's like, you're the one who's crazy. It's like, Molten is like, you're crazy. You're the one who's like throwing a pumpkin bomb with um, your son in your arms. And he's like, just a minor explosive to make a point, Mark. (laughs) It's like like a bad Thanksgiving dinner with your (laughs) in-laws that you don't like. But like, um, like the stakes being so high. 
this is, has always been one of my absolute favorite comics. Do you remember it connecting with you in such a mature way? Like this is a quite a mature story that's happening here. Mm. And I, I, from my perspective, it could not be more different than the spirits of venom books that we just read, because those oh. are so wildly in your face. And for me, like perfectly meant for, you know, a 13 year old kid to, to become obsessed with. Do yeah. you remember this connecting with you on a more um, like emotional, mature level right away? Yeah. Or is that something you got to know like and, and appreciate it more over time? No, I mean, I think that it's something that um, connected with me. I don't think that at the time I was really able to distinguish why this one was drawing me in or why this one was. And they were drawing me in for different reasons, like as you're describing. But something that I always loved about Marvel Comics is I never felt like I was being talked down to. You know, I felt like, you know, it, it's quite literary, the, the writing, a lot of it. So I think that I was drawn in by the seriousness of this one. And as I said earlier, you know, my parents were going through a divorce. And so I'm not sure if I put the pieces together as concretely as I have now about why this meant something to me. But um, I was just like riveted and scared. I mean, mm -hmm. I just thought it was like really scary about this like guy. And then there are these moments, you know, where he takes his mask off and he's like, He's all being sincere and you know, he wants the family to be together. And he's like, I'm not going to make the same mistakes as my father who uh, left me behind while he was out being goblin. I'm going to be the green goblin, but I'm going to have my family with me and we're going <laughs> to do it together. And um, it's like, how do you deal with that kind of crazy? He's still Norman Jr.'s father. And by the end of the issue, there's a three panel kind of like push in on little Norman Jr., who I guess is like seven or eight in this or something. Okay, yeah. And you just go in and his scowl at Spider-Man, just like, and you're like, oh man, like this is gonna be, the next generation <laughs> is coming. The cycle of abuse like continues. So it's like really sophisticated and like kind of high level stuff here. And I was reading it again. I was like really struck by this. I was like, wow, like this is emotion. This is intense. Yeah. I think as a kid, I didn't connect with this series. I think because it's, more emotionally advanced and, and more nuanced in like the layers that we appreciate now. And I didn't appreciate Sal Buscema's art the way I do now. Mm. And I look at it now and I'm like, Sal's a master. There's so many panels uh, with, without dialogue or mm. captions that are told just through facial expressions, through acting, through emotion, through subtleties in, in changes, you know, like there's the scene that you mentioned with the pumpkin bomb that Normie is holding. And then most of the panels in the, in that page are silent as the fumes engulf over them. And the way, you know, Molten Man is like, oh no, he's like, you know, crying out for help, but there's no dialogue there. It's just, it's so well done. It's so smart. And the horror of it all that you, that you keep mentioning, I think is because to me, at least, I think Harry as the Green Goblin is scarier than Norman as the Green Goblin in a lot of ways, because you've got more years and connections than that emotional attachment that you have to Harry Osborn is Peter's best friend is someone who knows him so well. Yeah. Yeah. Norman knows who Peter is, but he's a scary, powerful man. Harry is your brother who is becoming twisted in front of your eyes. And you're like horrified because you, all you want to do is help him and save him. And he is going deeper and deeper into this madness. It's, so upsetting uh in terms of character arcs yeah man it's well done yeah and he knows what's going to trigger spider-man he knows how to manipulate him and also there's something about the style i mean there could not be more disparate styles 
between the, especially the spirits of, um, of Venom art, the spirits of vengeance art versus this art. And just like, you know, in that one, it's like, you know, there's flames and drool and vein, like everything's just like, it's saturated with, with image. And in this case, there's really not like a wasted stroke, you know, like every gesture is completely deliberate and like, and I'm not saying that the other one's not deliberate, but I'm just saying that this is like, there's a certain minimalism to it where that just like cuts to the bone. It's just, it's really kind of a masterpiece. The way that you describe that slow push in that comes towards the end of the issue is, is those three panels is, is really, it got me thinking about this in a new way of like that in a way I think can at least be interpreted as somewhat of a climax itself because that's sort of a chapter close, and then we get a, a kind of denouement as we see the Green Goblin being carted away, and that's just two pages that finish the story. I love the fact that you paired this with Spirits of Venom, not for their differences only, because those are obvious, but in a similar way, this is a shocking story to read because of how it dared to go to those places is something that even today, you know, as we, Ryan and I read every book every week, this is something that feels like it's it's playing in rarefied air by daring to discuss that kind of thing. And, you know, it's cool and it's fun for superhero, supervillain reasons. Oh, what could become of this kid later on? But on a real storytelling, emotional level, it is very, very profoundly impactful. It's, it's, yeah. it's shocking. No, it's, it's super deep because, you know, Spider-Man, you know, he wins the battle. Harry loses. He goes to jail. But the goblin wins like the mm. goblin wins because it's infected Norman now because he now sees that Spider-Man has like beat up his dad, you know, in the same way that Harry saw, you know, believe that Spider-Man had killed his father and stuff. So the idea of the Green Goblin kind of wins. And that's mm. kind of like one of the kind of the, you know, the nuance of it or like the I don't want to say bittersweetness, but like it's messy, you know, and yeah. like they're safe from him today. But, you know the idea of it is infected this family and like that cycle of abuse is going to continue. And like, that's something that you don't really see every day in a comic book. Yeah. And continue. It does. I want to suggest that anybody who reads this issue, uh, spectacular Spider-Man 189, uh, also on Marvel unlimited jump right into spectacular number 200, which is the, the culmination of this long, uh, Peter, Harry, Spidey goblin story. 200 is wow 200 is such a special issue and especially i think the last seven or eight pages are silent something like that and the story goes that uh, it was all scripted out by jm and he saw sal buscema's art and they decided to keep it wordless because everything was told on the page already and it's mm. such an impactful brutal heartbreaking perfect spider-man story now i i don't think i'll ever read 200 without reading 189 beforehand i think they go along so well together oh actually check that out yeah it's so good man um yeah this is the this was one of my blind spots as a as a spider-man fan and i'm i'm so glad to as an adult sort of come into these issues and see that they are really really special yeah one shout out also just to one of my favorite moments in it and maybe it's because i'm a foodie but like you know it's a dinner party right and they're like you know spider-man shows up uninvited and late <laughs> and so harry is like well 
since you're here, you may as well sit down. He's eating. He's eating. He's like, yeah, he's like, you know, well, come on, dig in. I slaved over a hot stove all day, and everything will be ruined if it gets cold. Like, you know, <laughs> things are going so well. And he's like, did you hear me? I said, eat. And like this terrifying frame of him, where you can actually see like the Green Goblin's face in Harry's unmasked face, and uh, they're just like, so what next? eat i guess and like he has his mask i'm just like <laughs> taking a bite of <laughs> taking a bite of steak and they have this dinner conversation but that moment really um I, there's something familiar about that I, I don't know you know going through a divorce and then you know you're having like all these like mixed feelings then you're like visiting your your dad or whatever and there's so much going on in your mind and he like you know you're just going to eat dinner together and you know you're not a lot of so much is so much more is going to be unspoken than what mm-hmm. is spoken and uh I really wonder if like the writer here had that kind of experience to draw on or, you know, what was inspiring this sort of scenario, which is really unconventional. Um, and like, it seems, it seems quite specific. Mm-hmm. And so if you ever have him on, ask him. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that would be a great conversation to talk about yeah. these two issues with him and get some of the background on. Yeah. And the larger story, yeah. The larger story about, Oof. you know, just the dynamic Oof. of, of Harry, you know, Harry and Peter. Wow. Jorge, take note. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel good. Tucker, you got anything else you want to talk about with these, uh, these issues? Watch Marvel 616. <laughs> yeah, please. Everybody watch Marvel Did you? What did? You, was there anything uh, noteworthy that you ate while you were working on uh, the Japanese Spider-Man? Oh, yeah. I mean, so right around the corner from the studio is like the super hot fire ramen place that's like known throughout Japan as being like the best spicy ramen. And like, I don't know if you can curse on this thing. They, they don't f around at this. <laughs> <laughs> like, like they are serious about Oof. like making this insanely spicy. So they're cultivating like the hottest peppers and stuff. And then they have this fire process where like first they're taking your chili base and then they're lighting it on fire. And and then they they have like demon masks and stuff all around <laughs> the place. There's like a line around the block for it. it's like really a, a a famous spot. And it's just like you just sweat and it was like we were shooting in the winter um so like you come out of there and like without your jacket on you used to be like sweating bullets <laughs> um and then going back into the studio man we must have smelled like garlic like an insane amount of like garlic and like pepper and stuff and like, these studios in japan are tiny so that was really funny and then uh, I, I just love like whenever i travel i love taking the crew out we, we got to go to some cool like restaurants and stuff um and just had a good time and just like kind of celebrating this amazing moment of being able to be in Japan to tell a Marvel story. I mean, it's a dream come true. Yeah. For, for many people, myself included, thank you again for producing a wonderful movie about uh, one of my favorite things that has ever existed in, in Marvel lore. So we appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate you as well. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Thanks for coming, David. Thank you. Thanks again to David. What a wonderful time talking to him. It's just so awesome anytime you talk to someone, you just feel how excited they are, how passionate they are about the subject matter. And with a super accomplished filmmaker like David, to get to talk to him about a medium that he doesn't work in, he just loves, uh, is awesome. And it's, it's, it's truly a delight. Really, really fun. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about Amazing Spider-Man and everything going on. Um, so I'm really glad he picked Spectacular Spider-Man 189. Uh, it definitely pairs well if you are reading Amazing Spidey. And as I mentioned, read 189 and then read number 200 from Spectacular Spider-Man. 
terrific comics and even more relevant these days with what's going on in Amazing Spidey. Mm -hmm. But that's about it for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Pullis Audio Development Manager. He also wanted to go by the name Snakes, but uh, he doesn't actually know what a snake is. He thinks a snake is uh, what most people will call a cup. Uh, Brad, we have to explain to you what a snake really is. We can do that offline. <laughs> you'll, you'll figure it out one of these days. But I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.